This is the tale of one mother's love and dedication to getting justice for her son and to the power of the newspaper. This is the story of Joe Maycheck, Tilly Maycheck, and Ted Marcinkowitz. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. It was the first time in Illinois history that a person convicted of murder had been pardoned without the arrest and conviction of the actual killer. Those words were written by Chicago Times newspaper writer Jack McFall years after the events of today's story. But before we get ahead of ourselves... Chicago was 11 below zero Fahrenheit the afternoon of December 9th, 1932 when a 6-foot, 2-inch, 230-pound Chicago policeman named William D. Lundy went off duty on Ashland Avenue and 43rd Street on the southwest side, stopping off at a speakeasy masquerading as a delicatessen. This was, after all, a year before the end of Prohibition. The store's proprietor, Vera Walush, was behind the counter in the front of the shop, Lundy, a 58-year-old married father of three, headed into the dark kitchen in the back to get warm by the old-timey stove, having a seat at the table. A truck driver named John Zagata, who had delivered a load of coal for Walush, walked in and took a chair at the table in the kitchen by Lundy. Zagata bought himself and Lundy a shot. Vera Walush poured the two shots of raw moonshine for her guests. While Walush adjusted the knobs of the radio... Lundy talked with Walusha's four-year-old daughter. Moments later, Zagata saw two dark figures in the dimly lit doorway separating the deli and the back kitchen. Although he couldn't make out their features, he saw the gleam of gunmetal in their hands. One of the dark figures announced, This is a stick-up. Walusha screamed, grabbing her daughter and running into a nearby closet. Patrolman Lundy, who had his back to the door, rose reaching for his gun, but before he could get a shot off. He was killed by the intended thieves with seven shots to his body. Zagata, who had escaped out the back door, circled around to the front to see the two thieves leave empty-handed out the front door into an idling car with a getaway driver at the wheel. A postman who had heard the shot and screams rushed to see the two exiting the building as well. A cop being killed on or off duty has always been a significant thing in Chicago and most cities. But as the city was gearing up for the 1933 A Century of Progress World's Fair set to open in five months, this was an especially big deal as city leaders were optimistic the fair would help Chicago's recovery after the Depression. Lundy's death, as well as five other unsolved murders that week alone, threatened to further tarnish Chicago's image. Lundy, it should be noted, was the eighth policeman to be killed in Chicago that year. Chicago's mayor, Anton Cermak, wanted this case wrapped up quickly, but police investigators did not turn up anything solid at the scene. Ten area youths fitting the general description of the thieves were rounded up, Vera Walush, the operator of the speakeasy, initially told police she had no idea who the killers might have been. 
After several hours of interrogation, she suggested the police talk to a friend of hers named Bessie Barron. Barron said that about a month before the incident, a neighbor of hers named Ted Marcinkowitz told her he would, quote, like to rob Walush. After Barron's claim, Walush changed her statement and said that Marcinkowitz was indeed one of the gunmen. Word got out in the neighborhood that police were looking for Marcinkowitz, 25, and police eventually got word that he had been hiding out in the neighborhood of Bridgeport in the basement of a friend of his named Joseph Maychek and Maychek's wife, Helen. By the time they questioned 24-year-old Maychek, Marcinkowitz was again on the run. Joe and Helen Maychek were brought in for more questions. Some not-so-great responses to police questioning by Maychik and his wife Helen, coupled with Maychik's minor brush with the law the year before, was enough for the Chicago police to hold him. He was twice put in a lineup, and twice, speakeasy owner Vera Walush did not recognize him. After some apparent coaxing during the third lineup, Vera Walush picked Joe Maychik out as one of the gunmen. Weeks later, Ted Marcinkowitz was arrested, and both he and Maychik were indicted on January 18, 1933. Jury selection began on November 6th of that year, with the trial starting the next day. Even though both men had solid alibis and there was a lack of physical evidence showing they were involved, based primarily on the eyewitness testimony of Vera Walush, the two defendants were convicted three days later on November 10th after the jury deliberated for just two hours and 40 minutes. Although the prosecution sought the death penalty, pretty standard for cop killers at the time, it would have meant the electric chair, punishment was set at 99 years in prison for each man. Maychik and Mar Sinkowitz began serving their sentences at Stateville Prison in Joliet, Illinois in December of 1933. This is where many stories would end, with justice served, but there's more. Nearly 11 years later, in October of 1944, a cub reporter for the Chicago Times newspaper named Terry Colangelo spotted a classified ad in that day's paper that read, $5,000 reward for killers of Officer Lundy on December 9th, 1932. Call GRO 1758-12-7 to 7 p.m. The Grow was short for Grove Hill, the uh, telephone exchange at the time. Chicago Times City Editor Karen Walsh agreed there might be a story there and handed it to reporter James P. McGuire to find out more about the ad. McGuire was a former private investigator and an experienced crime reporter. McGuire soon discovered that the ad had been placed by 52-year-old Tilly Machik, whose son Joseph had been convicted of Officer Lundy's murder 11 years earlier. McGuire arranged to meet Mrs. Maychik in her two-story home at 2038 West 52nd Street in the Back of the Yards neighborhood on Chicago's south side. 
In broken English, the short, wiry, dark-haired woman instructed McGuire to sit as she sat across from McGuire at the kitchen table. Speaking slowly as she searched for the right words in English, she declared, Joe, good boy, Joe don't kill nobody. When asked if she had proof of her son Joe's innocence, Tilly Machik stated that the only kind she had was the same proof that the jury had refused to believe at her son's trial. It would later come to light there was substantial evidence that was never presented at trial by a less than effective defense attorney, a defense attorney who did not raise objections at trial where any competent attorney would have. When asked how she raised the money, $5,000 is roughly $74,000 in today's money, Mrs. Maycheck said, quote, I scrub floors in office building downtown at night for 11 years, ever since my boy Joe is gone, end quote. Tilly's husband, Michael, who was 10 years her senior, had spent 35 years working in the stockyards, but that work was not always steady. Mrs. Maycheck knew that she could not depend on Michael's paycheck to pursue the truth that would free her son and chose to work as much as she could. Tilly Maycheck worked eight hours a night, six days a week, scrubbing floors on her hands and knees in Commonwealth Edison's downtown Loop office building at 72 West Adams Street. She and her husband even mortgaged their family home. Another son, Frank, a World War II soldier stationed overseas, sent his allotment money home to his mother to add to the fund. Tilly told McGuire that in 1942, she received an anonymous letter stating that the writer could prove her son's innocence. She took that letter to the state's attorney's office, but nothing ever came of it. Mrs. Maycheck believed the letter was evidence that someone other than her knew her son Joe was not guilty. She felt the $5,000 she had saved would be enough to motivate that someone to finally come forward. It was also revealed that Mrs. Maycheck first tried to obtain the proof of Joe's innocence with a $3,500 reward, but no one ever responded to that ad. Tilly kept working, adding to the fund until she reached $5,000. McGuire handed that story off to Jack McFall, a veteran newspaper man with over 20 years' experience for rewrite. On October 11, 1944, the human interest story about the scrub woman working tirelessly to raise money to free her son hit local Chicago newspapers. Soon after, the story was carried in newspapers across the country. I found it in small and large newspapers in Lubbock, Texas, Richmond, Virginia, West Palm Beach, Florida, Salt Lake City, Meriden, Connecticut, Reno, Spokane, Washington, and many more. The one-off story became a big deal for McGuire and McFall and the Chicago Times newspaper, and they followed that first story with many more about the case. Tilly Maycheck shared a 30-page typed account her son Joe wrote while in prison with the reporters. On the front page were the words, To my mother. While in prison, in addition to writing his account, Joe Maycheck completed his high school education through prison night classes. He then proceeded to college-level study through the Stateville School and later a University of Michigan Correspondence Course. 
The most jaw-dropping claim in Joe's document was that his trial's presiding judge, Charles Mothrop, had essentially conducted a second trial in his chambers right after the conviction. Mothrop had promised Maycheck a new trial, calling the case a miscarriage of justice. Reporters McGuire and McFall could not confirm this with Judge Mothrop as he had died in 1935, two years after the trial's end. As unbelievable as this conversation between the judge and the newly convicted seemed, Maycheck's statement added that there had been a witness to the conversation. James Zagata, the coal truck driver who had witnessed the crime and felt that the wrong man had been convicted. Zagata confirmed Matrix's account of what Mothrop had said. In case you're wondering, as I was, why the judge promised to get Maychik a new trial but hadn't done so in the two years since the first trial until his death, it was later revealed that the judge who sat on a superior court had been threatened with removal from the Democratic ticket if he didn't back off the Maychik issue. He went along with this and still lost his seat six months later. Matrix's lawyer was also dead by then and couldn't be questioned. At trial, the defendant, bailiff, and even the bench noticed the attorney, W.W. O'Brien's, obvious intoxication during the trial. O'Brien did not cross-examine Vera Walush about her identification of Joe Machik and talked Joe out of taking the stand in his own defense. Joe Machik's parents paid that lawyer $1,000 for the trial and another $500 for an incoherently written appeal that failed. That attorney, W.W. O'Brien, was later disbarred by the Illinois Supreme Court of a charge of taking money from a client and then failing to furnish required services. As for Vera Walush, the speakeasy owner whose eyewitness identification was crucial to sending Maychik and Marcinkowitz to prison, right after the shooting, she told police she wouldn't be able to recognize the killers because she'd fled to a closet with her daughter. Maychik explained to the reporters that he had been in those two lineups viewed by Walush on the day of his arrest. Both times she stated without question that he was not one of the killers, only to change her mind. It appears overzealous police and Walusha's fears of being prosecuted for running a speakeasy during Prohibition may have been the reason she decided to point the finger at Maycheck and Marcinkowitz. The Chicago Times newspaper arranged for Joe Maycheck to take a polygraph test at Stateville Prison. The test was administered by Leonard Keeler, the co-inventor and principal promoter of the polygraph, which Maycheck passed. The Chicago Times brought all of their findings, there were many additional ones I didn't have time to list here, to the state's attorney's office, who refused to reopen the case. The Times then hired Walker Butler, a well-known Chicago lawyer, to seek a pardon for Maycheck. It appears they made no such effort for Marcinkowitz. The lawyer was, at the time, a Democratic member of the Illinois Senate and a supporter and friend of Illinois Governor Dwight H. Green. On August 15, 1945, based on Butler's petition and Green's own review of the materials, Governor Green granted Maycheck a full pardon. When he signed Maycheck's pardon in August of 1945, Governor Green called Maycheck, quote, 
a victim of one of the most unfortunate miscarriages of justice in Illinois history, end quote. Upon his release, Joe Maycheck appears to have not been embittered by his experience, saying, quote, I know that nobody escapes his share of troubles. What happened to me was my portion. I realize I'll never be able to find happiness if I start out with a grudge against anybody, end quote. As for the $5,000 Tilly Maycheck raised, she offered it to the newspaper for helping her son get pardoned, but the publishers declined as they considered the case one of community interest and public service. Two years after his release, the state of Illinois awarded Joe Maycheck $24,000 for his wrongful imprisonment, $5,000 of which he gave to a political representative for his help in securing the twenty-four grand. In what sounds like now, as it did then, a shakedown, Maychik allegedly gave the remaining money to his mother Tilly. Maychik eventually remarried his wife Helen, with whom he had divorced while he was in prison. The Maychik family settled in Oak Lawn, Illinois, where, according to a New York Times column, Joe worked for an insurance company and for the Cook County Circuit Court. He was also a precinct captain in Oak Lawn. According to one of his sons, although he had been pardoned, Maycheck lost work due to the specter of being an ex-con. Tilly Maycheck, a mother who believed so strongly in her son's innocence, died in 1964 at the age of 72. It was Joe Maycheck who called reporter Jack McFall crying with the sad news of his mother's passing the day before. After a car accident in which he suffered severe head injuries and symptoms that might now be diagnosed as Alzheimer's, Joe Maycheck was confined to the Mantino Mental Health Hospital about 40 miles south of Oak Lawn, where he spent the last years of his life, dying in 1983 at the age of 73. The Mantino Mental Health Hospital closed its doors in December of 1985, after 55 years in operation. As late as 1982, James Maycheck, one of Joe Maycheck's sons, placed a classified ad in the Chicago Sun-Times in the hopes of turning up a fresh lead in the case. Although his father had been absolved of the murder, James was quoted as saying, It was something I had to do a try for something that would clear his case once and for all. Joe Maycheck was survived by his wife Helen, sons James, Joseph, and Wayne, and a daughter, Theodora, known as Teddy. Both Joe Maycheck and Tilly Maycheck's obituaries received a prominent spot in the New York Times. What about Ted Marcinkowitz? Well, shortly before Illinois Governor Dwight Green left office in 1949, a full four years after Maycheck was released, Green offered to commute Ted Marcinkowitz's life sentence to 75 years, which would have made him eligible for parole in 1958. Marcinkowitz turned down that offer, which turned out to be a wise choice concluding that the prosecution, quote, had suppressed facts which amounted to a denial of a fair trial, end quote, Cook County Criminal Court Judge Thomas J. Lynch granted a state writ of habeas corpus, and the prosecution then dismissed the charges against Marcinkowitz. 
Theodore Ted Marcinkowitz was released from prison in 1950. Marcinkowitz later shortened his surname to Marson and moved to California. Unlike Maycheck, who received a payout from the state within two years of his release, it wasn't until the summer of 1965, 15 years after his release, when the news that Governor Otto Kerner had signed legislation awarding Ted Marson $35,000 for wrongful imprisonment from 1933 to 1950. As with Joe Machik, that amounted to about 2000 per year of jail time. When Marson arrived in Chicago to pick up his check and visit relatives, he also met with Machik. He said he had, quote, a million things to talk about. These are two guys who went to grade school together at Sacred Heart Polish Roman Catholic Grammar School and later Tilden Tech High School, not to mention their shared wrongful arrest and incarceration. Marcinkowitz was quoted in 1944 in the Chicago Times while he was in jail, quote, No matter what happens to me, I'll regret to my dying day that I stopped at Joe's home and in doing so contributed to his unjust conviction, end quote. Concerning his $35,000 payout, Marcin was quoted as saying, I'd have to call it blood money. I served 17 years for it. Still, I'm thankful to get it. With his eyesight failing and fears that he would be committed to a convalescent home, Ted wrote Joe Maycheck's wife Helen a letter in early 1982 which read, When one gets to be over 70 and slowly degenerating, losing his eyesight and getting senile and being unproductive, it's time to go. Life no longer is worth the effort, and I can't see myself in a convalescent home and walking around with a white-tipped cane being a burden also to my sisters or other institutions. Just like a car, Helen, when it is completely worn out, one must junk it. So I decided it is time for me to go to sleep. Death to all of us is, of course, inevitable. So I would like Joe and thousands of others suffering daily in institutions or convalescent homes. I deeply regret causing you and Joe all the trouble we encountered for something of which we were innocent. Just tough luck, Helen. My most fervent best wishes for a happy remainder of your life, Helen. Goodbye, Ted. Marson took his own life in April of 1982. The building that housed the speakeasy is long gone. Currently an auto insurance company, part of a strip mall, is on the site. The Chicago Times merged with the Chicago Sun in 1948 to create the Chicago Sun-Times. If some of this story sounds familiar, it was made into a film in 1948, very loosely based on the Matrix story, titled Call Northside 777, with Jimmy Stewart playing a composite of reporters McGuire and McFall. McGuire served as a technical advisor on this film, collecting $2,500 for his services. Joe Matrick received $1,000 for film rights. Speakeasy owner and finger pointer Vera Walouche was allegedly the only one of the participants in this drama who refused to sign a release to be portrayed in Call Northside 777, so the filmmakers decided to change her name. 
Even with that change, in May of 1950, Walush fired a lawsuit for $500,000, charging that the film caused her to be, quote, subject to dishonor and humiliation. 20th Century Fox settled her lawsuit in October 1954, paying her $25,000 and agreeing not to reissue the film in any theater or to any local TV station within the municipal limits of Chicago. Walush received $1,000 more than Joe Matrick did in his award for 12 years of unjust incarceration, an incarceration for which Walush is mainly to blame. Call Northside 777 was the first Hollywood-produced feature film to be shot entirely on location in Chicago. The filmmaker shot on South Halstead, South Canal, South Displains, South Honoré, in parts of the Back of the Yards neighborhood, not far from where the original incident occurred. Many famous landmarks, such as the Chicago Merchandise Mart, Holy Trinity Polish Mission, and the Wrigley Building on North Michigan Avenue, can be seen throughout the film. As of this writing, the shooting death of Officer William Lundy remains unsolved. I do hope you've enjoyed today's episode. As always, I'd love to hear from you if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have a different topic you think might be a good fit for a future episode of the Chicago History Podcast. I can be reached by email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I will be posting news articles, pictures, and ads from back in the day related to this episode on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages. Check them out and give us a follow, please. Thanks, as always, to John K. Schneider for creating the Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages. He can be found at Angel Eyes Art JKS on Instagram or via email at Angel Eyes Art jks at gmail.com if you would please take a moment and like subscribe and kindly review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a few friends it helps us get the word out and reach new history fans and fans of chicago get out and explore when possible learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe thanks for listening